James chapter one, we started our, our journey through this, this great book, really through this great sermon. It, it's a sermon. Pastor James, leader of the church in Jerusalem, is, is writing this to the scattered Christians around the region. And we just began to jump into it last week. And, and we saw that James, unlike Paul, unlike other preachers, unlike myself, he, he just says hello, and then he just gets straight to it. He didn't waste any time. He, he cut straight to the chase. And so last week, he he began his message, and this week what he's saying is really picking up on what he said last week. So let's look at it together. Let's consider what he said, and then let's consider what he is saying to us this morning. He, last week we heard James encourage the church to count it all joy. I mean, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, come to a, a settled conviction and judgment a firm judgment fixed in your mind that the reality of trials that you face in this fallen world are meant by God's grace to become fuel for your joy. Not because of the trial itself. The trials often hurt. They're often painful. And not because you've you've gritted it and worked hard enough and you can white-knuckle yourself to being in a place of joy in the midst of it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to to count it all joy. Have a firm conviction and a settled perspective that your present circumstances and the reality of your present trials are being used by God to refine the genuineness of your faith, to cultivate in you steadfastness, that as you remain steadfast by the grace of God, God continues to work in you the image and likeness of his son to the point of maturity, lacking in nothing the thing to which we should most want. Count it all joy because you know, you know who God is and you're seeing the reality of your present trials through his eternal purposes. But James anticipates some pushback. James anticipates there to be some some questions in the hearts of God's people. Let's let's be honest, Pastor James. There are times when we face difficulties and and trials and circumstances in our life where being able to see the present reality of our circumstance as fuel for our joy seems almost impossible. There are times in in our lives, Pastor James, when circumstances and, and trials seem so persistent We can't even begin to fathom a light at the end of the tunnel that seeing them through the lens of your eternal purposes and realities seems almost impossible. In fact, it feels like my my heart is suffocating. Like the circumstances are just closing down tighter and tighter on my throat. Count it all joy. I, I can't seem to come to this settled conviction, this firmness of confidence that enables me to see this trial as as fuel for my joy because I can't see how it is working in me, steadfastness and how it's refining the genuineness of my faith. I I can't see it, It's, it's hard. James understands that and James anticipates that. James is living a a Christian life and following Christ with joy and obedience in the midst of great difficulty and persecution. He knows exactly what you're feeling. 
And so this morning, as we look to what James has to say to to, the church in these moments, I trust by God's grace that he'll do what only he can do, and you can hear his words to you and be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged this morning, and I want you to be encouraged on the authority of, of God's word, and for whatever it's worth in the time that we have outside of this morning, the testimony of how it may have worked itself out in my own life, when it feels like it's difficult, near impossible, to see these present trials in light of God's eternal purposes and realities, nonetheless being able to have a firm conviction that they're meant to be fuel for my joy. Your situation isn't hopeless. God stands ready. He stands ready to give you exactly what it is you need. If any of you lacks, James gets it. He knows we're not there yet. We're not at the place of lacking anything. We're getting there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. This is a very small paragraph that packs an enormous punch. James anticipates the response of our heart in the midst of various trials. And he knows that we're not yet at the place where we lack nothing. We're we're not yet at the place of, of being conformed entirely into the image and likeness of Christ. We have not yet seen him face to face to become like him. And because we're not yet where we're going, there there's something that we lack. There's something that we need. Because if any of you in these moments lack wisdom. Now James pulls up some huge themes in these verses, let's just be honest. Wisdom and faith and doubting and double-mindedness. Enormous themes, enormous concepts. And if we're going to understand what James, as a wise and and tender-hearted pastor, is actually saying to God's people, we're going to have to understand these verses in particular in the context in which James wrote them. Because the reality of it is, verse 5 in particular, we tend to pull out of context, memorize, and try to slap it on anything and everything that comes our way. And then verse 6, there are whole streams of the church that tend to take and butcher for their own personal purposes that ultimately do nothing but leave so many of God's people disillusioned and crushed and defeated. That's not what Pastor James is doing here. There's wise and and tender encouragement here for God's people. Living life in the midst of a, a fallen and broken world with the remaining reality of sin still present in their own heart. James, James has encouragement for God's people this morning, but we have to slow down and listen to him in context. James diagnoses the problem of God's people when they're facing the varied realities of life in such a way that they feel so overwhelming and suffocating 
that it seems next to impossible to see the present trial in light of God's eternal reality. And what he says we actually need in that moment is wisdom. Lots of things we might pray for or ask for or think we need, but James, being a wise and tender pastor, says what we actually need is wisdom. Wisdom is an enormous biblical theme. It's a very nuanced, very textured, very layered theme. So if we're going to understand exactly what James means by wisdom here, and I think as we understand exactly what he means, what he's saying to us becomes so clear and it becomes encouraging for us, we're going to have to understand what he was getting after. And so for James, we, we, we look at the word that James used for wisdom there, and that word is, it's the Greek word Sophia. And we think, well, what does James mean when he uses this particular word? Because the Bible uses a variety of words that we translate wisdom. So when we think about the scriptures that that James would have learned and he would have read, that would be the Old Testament, we think, where is this word found there if we might get an idea of what James actually meant? What's he getting after in this idea of wisdom? And, And if you look in the Old Testament, you'll find that the most condensed Place. Well, I should say the most dense place, where the word is used most often in the shortest amount of time, is in Exodus chapter 36. And in Exodus chapter 30, here, I'll read it. You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 36, it's, it's speaking of God giving direction to the craftsmen who are going to build the tabernacle. And Exodus chapter 36 does this. Bezalel and Oliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oliab and every craftsman in whom the mind of the Lord has put skill, everyone who, whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. Now, did you hear the word wisdom there? In the Old Testament, the word James used for wisdom is translated as skill. One nuance, one aspect, one layer of wisdom in the biblical genre of wisdom, an idea of wisdom, is having the skill to actually take the Lord's will and the, war, the Lord's word and apply it to a direct reality in life. That's one of the nuances of wisdom when we look at it in the Bible. Pastor James chose that particular word for a particular reason because there's something of God's will and God's purpose that needs to be applied to the reality of life. Isn't that what he just told us to do? He just told us to to be able to see our present trials through the eternal purposes and plans of God, knowing who he is and what his purposes are to be true. And then he says, if you lack wisdom, if you lack the skill to actually take what God is doing and see what God is doing and apply it to the present reality of your life so that you can see that trial and count it as fuel for joy, knowing what he's doing, what you need is wisdom. He actually uses this same word again, just to kind of reinforce, just for you to understand exactly what he's saying. He uses it in chapter three. And in chapter three, he's gonna come back and talk about wisdom a whole lot. But when he talks about wisdom in chapter three, he uses the same word. And in chapter three, he uses this word to talk about what wisdom looks like. And as he talks about what wisdom looks like, he he talks about a life of wisdom. You can see it displayed. There's a skill involved in actually taking God's eternal purposes and word and applying them to the realities of life. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about in these moments when it feels like we can't seem to come to the place where we can count the present trials as fuel for joy because we can see them through the lens of God's eternal purposes. What we need is wisdom. That's what we really need. 
We need from God the ability to actually see things the way that he sees them. This this perspective to apply what we know to be true about him to the very thing that we're facing in this life right now. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman, he, he actually would go on to say that if you take all the very nuances of wisdom in the Bible, all the different layers and textures of the way wisdom is talked about and the way wisdom is referenced and and what it does, he actually defines it like this and it does nothing but shore up the way that James uses it here. He actually says that wisdom in the Bible is meant to illuminate our experiences in life, not from our earthbound perspective, but from a divine perspective. Biblical wisdom allows us to see through to the larger picture. I love that. To see through to the larger picture. It broadens our vision of what is true about life and what is really the case when God looks at a thing. So what we need in those moments and in those seasons is to be able to look through those things to the bigger picture to see what this is the way that God sees what it is. That's what James says we really need. Pastor James understands that there there are times when knowing that our trials are serving God's purposes eludes us. And the ability to consider them as fuel for our joy seems nearly impossible. And he says what we need is, is wisdom in those moments. And then he says something that becomes so simple that we gloss over it too quickly. He says all you need, look at verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. A beautiful, beautiful statement. If any of you lacks wisdom, If any of you lacks the the ability in the moment to to be able to consider the the present trials you're facing as fuel for joy because you can see them through God's purposes of refining the genuineness of your face and cultivating steadfastness in you that you might bring you to maturity, all you have to do is ask him for it. I I hope that feels freeing to you. Without James telling me that, The overwhelming thought or desire in my heart is, great, now I've got to go find it. Now I've got to go get it. Now I've got to figure out where it actually comes from and what it actually is, and I'm left no better off than I was before. Now I just know what I don't have, but I have no clue where it comes from. James just says, if you lack it, all you have to do is ask God for it. Thomas Manton, who's a great Puritan pastor, Thomas Manton said that God will have everything fetched out by prayer. He said, we as followers of Christ must never assume that God will give us, apart from prayer, what he's promised to give us only through prayer. I think so many times when we face these situations, and I know it to be true in my own heart, that it seems impossible to see the reality of what I'm facing right now from the lens of God's eternal purposes in me, but I come to a place where I just assume that God is gonna give me the wisdom I need to see things the way I need to see them so that I can count them as as joy in my life because I know he's refining me in it and producing something in me in it. I just assume he's gonna do it because he's God and that's his job. And then I still remain confused. I still remain frustrated. I become more comfortable with the growing distance in my heart between myself and God because I can't really see 
I can't count it as fuel for my joy knowing that he's working in me in this thing. It just continues to feel overwhelming. Man said God has purposed that everything that he is giving to his children, he's giving by prayer. And that we must never assume that God will give us apart from prayer what he's promised to give us only through prayer. James says you need wisdom, ask him for it. Ask him for it. And when you ask, don't miss the humility required to ask. I think this is why I fail to ask so often and why I remain languishing and stuck sometimes. My eyes fixed solely on my own situation and my own trials and my own emotions in them because there is a humility that's required to ask for wisdom. A humility that admits you don't have it. That you haven't just forgotten. That you don't have what you need. A humility that recognizes what you need comes solely from the hand of God himself. There's something about trials in particular that help us to be consciously aware of just how desperately we actually need God. You see, if you're anything like me, and I'm making a broad assumption and generalization here, but I think it's a fair one, and I think it's probably going to be accurate for everyone. When things go well for me, and things go well for a while, things seem to click. Things seem to work. If I'm really honest, when I wake up, what the affections of my heart are really focused on is not the eternal purposes of, of God at work and at play. It, they're really focused on me. Well, I did that really well. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me. In fact, I'm not sure the sun would have come up if it wasn't for me. That's why the birds are chirping. They chirped for me this morning. And that's what my heart feels like. When things are going really well, it's it's me. And there's something inherent in trials. There's something inherent in these difficulties that that bring us back to a conscious reality and and a conscious reminder of how desperately dependent upon God we are. And and so James says, when you you realize you're you're in these trials and you're, you're facing these things, and it seems next to impossible to be able to figure out how to be able to count them as joy because you can't see them the way that God sees them. You don't see how they're working God's purposes out in you and through you. You just have to ask. You just have to ask. But he wants you to understand what that asking looks like. This is where so many people get into so much danger in this passage. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. James brings up some huge themes here. Doubt being the first one. And I want you to hear me say this, and and it's going to sound strange to some of you, but I just want you to listen. Doubt is one of the most important intellectual tools that God has given us. I just said that. Doubt is one of the most important intellectual tools that God has given us. In fact, it's probably fair to say right now, you're doubting more things than you actually believe. It's true. 
Let me try to illustrate doubt at work. I hope it would be my genuine hope that you are exercising the God-given intellectual capacity to doubt as you watch television and all the varied infomercials that come up and all the promises that are made. And when you get a continued email from a Nigerian prince who has figured out that he's related to you somehow and has promised you a fortune that you could never spend. And I hope you're, you're exercising in life your God-given intellectual capacity to actually doubt. You are meant to doubt things you're not supposed to believe. That's how it works. In fact, I'll make it more personal. We teach our kids how to have doubt, how to have healthy doubt. We tell our kids because of who we are as mom and dad and our love for them and our concern for them and our care for them, we tell them the importance of actually listening to us. But if we love them, we also tell them that there are people that they need to not listen to. And that when people tell them things that they're supposed to believe and things that they're supposed to do, that they come back to mom and dad and mom and dad sit down with them and help them think through what was said to them and what was told to them and whether or not we believe that. Doubt is one of the most important intellectual tools that God gave us as thinking beings created in his image and likeness. In fact, the Bible tells us to exercise a form of healthy doubt. It tells us to test all manner of things. It does. And as we test all manner of things, what we're doing is trying to understand the origin of those things, the authority those things come from, the accuracy of those things. That's good. That's right. That's healthy. Think about someone who comes to faith in Christ and is growing in their wisdom and their maturity or or children who have grown up in a Christian household. There comes a point in time when the questions begin to change. We're getting to that place, even in our own house, when the questions begin, I've believed this, but I'm not sure why. It's a great question. Worst thing you can do is say, go sit in your room for six hours so you quit thinking about that. Now, moms and dads, you're, you're supposed to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you, understanding why we believe something, the origin of what we believe, the authority behind what we believe, and the reasons for believing it. That's good. That's a healthy working out of the intelligence that God has given his people as thinking beings. James is not condemning the working out of doubt in the human mind and in the human heart. The Bible does, though, present an unhealthy doubt that takes people in a completely different direction. An unhealthy doubt that that begins to say things like, I can't know if anything is true. Underneath that, the belief that nothing really is ultimately true. An even more insidious form of doubt that, that James is actually zeroing in, hard, in here. The, the Bible begins, to, 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 begins to, to picture throughout it the varied textures and layers of the entire scriptures, a doubt that begins to say, I can't believe in you. I, I can't trust in you. I can't, I can't believe in your word, your character, Lord. I can't believe you, you are who you say you are and you do what you say you're going to do. I've got to figure it out on my own. If I'm going to understand what's true, it's up to me. James is zeroing in, in particular, on a, on a certain aspect of doubt that he's concerned about, that he's calling us to be aware of. And, and rather than leaving us there, he's such a kind pastor, such a wise pastor, 
So much to learn from James. Instead of just saying, ask with no doubt, not doubting, he's going to define for us and give us a picture of what that looks like so that you don't walk away unnecessarily insecure. He doesn't want you to walk away from from his words being unnecessarily burdened by, by the various forms of healthy doubt that drive you back to understanding what God has said. He's not talking about that. So he's going to try to help us understand what he is talking about. Listen to what he says. The one who doubts, this is what he's looking at. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Verse eight says he's a double minded man unstable in all of his ways. Because of that, verse seven, the the consequences, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. There's something about this doubt that he wants you to be clear about so that you don't walk away unnecessarily burdened and shamed because of the working out of doubt in your mind and heart. What he says first is that this doubt, this doubt displays a particular double-mindedness. Understanding what James means when he says that this doubter, this this presence of doubt here is double-minded will help us understand what he actually means. James is actually using a word that most scholars, Christian scholars and secular scholars, believe that James coined himself. He, He made it up. So we can't go anywhere else in the Bible and find this word other than his letter. He uses it one more time in chapter four. The word literally means double souled. That's what it means, double-souled. Trying to figure out how to actually explain what this is and, and give you kind of a nuance to it and, and can kind of feel it, I, I grasp for different pictures of what double-souled might be. So, so think about it this way, a double-souled person in James's day might be one that gathers with God's people to hear the reading of God's word, that, that gathers to break bread, that gathers to, to serve and meet needs, that, that gathers together with God's people because maybe doing all of these things, God really is true and it really will work and whatever's happening here might work itself out, but at the same same time, just to hedge my bets a little bit in my heart, I'm over here in the temple with the sacrifices. I'm over here with the activities and the working out of the, of the pagan temples, just in case maybe this is what's going to work. The double-souled person, the double-minded person, it's not being two-faced the way we say it. It's your heart is literally split between different things. The confidence in your heart, the faith in your heart, the trust in your heart, you're diversifying into a whole host of things, hedging your bets that one of them is actually going to work. That's what he's talking about. Think again maybe like a, like a double agent. You think about like a spy, like a double agent. A double agent has committed himself, his life, his work, his affections, his allegiance, his hope to one entity. But he's actually divided. He's done it secretly over here to another one too. His hopes is that by doing that, he can play them off against each other, ultimately for his own personal benefit. That's what being double-souled is. He's not talking about the presence of, of, of doubt. He's talking about a heart that's divided, a heart that's committed in multiple ways and to multiple things. John Bunyan actually tried to to give an illustration of this at one point, and so if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you might actually remember his character, Mr. Facing Both Ways. You remember him, Mr. Facing Both Ways? Mr. Facing Both Ways had a problem. He could see the good in every single option around him, but he could not come to a decision on what was right or good or true. Instead, he just saw everything around him and the potential and everything around him, but couldn't make a decision. Hedging his bets all the way around. 
That's what's operating in the heart when James is talking here. This double-souled person, this divided-in-heart person, of course they're unstable. They've got no anchor. There's no anchor for their soul. In, in, in dividing their loyalties, in dividing their hope, and dividing their trust, and spreading it out, they've got nothing that they can know to be good and right and true. When God says for his people in the midst of these trials, he's working out a steadfastness in them, this instability of the double soul is the complete opposite of steadfastness. It's being tossed around in a storm. That's what the word actually means. The double-souled are unstable because they can't know what is true because they've split their loyalties. They're like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Not a wave crashing to the shore. Don't think pretty Oahu surfer, big curl. No, he's talking about the waves out in the distance as the sets begin to develop. Any slight change in wind any slight change in movement underneath. The waves change size. There's no predictability to them. There's no consistency to them. They're left at the whim of all the varied environmental factors. You can't predict it at all. That's what's at play with a double-souled person. Because they're divided. Because their loyalties are spread out. They're completely unstable, completely unpredictable. No consistency to it at all because there's no anchor for the soul. They can't seem to believe that which is right and true and good. So it only makes sense that James would say the person who's divided in heart, which sees the character and nature of God and his eternal purposes as one potential option that might bring good, but I'm going to hedge my bets on all these other things as well. Well, it makes complete sense. You can't presume to receive anything from him. Those who are double-souled in, in heart, you, you can't expect to receive wisdom from him. James looks at God's people in the midst of their struggles, knowing that there are these moments when being able to see present realities through eternal purposes seems so difficult but to see them and consider them and count them as fuel for joy because you know God is refining your faith and cultivating maturity in you seems so far away. Listen, just ask him. Just ask him. Ask him with, with confidence, knowing not how you feel in the moment, but knowing what you know to be true about him. Same thing he said last week knowing what you know to be true about him. Ask him in faith, what is it that we know to be true about him? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. When you are in those moments, in those seasons, and you can't seem to consider it all joy, it doesn't feel like it's going to even be possible to see what God is doing in you and and through you in that. James says, with zero hesitation, as a child of God, just ask him for the wisdom you need to see it because you know something to be true about him. Regardless of how it feels in the moment and how suffocating the, the trial and the pressure comes, you know something to be true about God, and that's he's generous. 
He gives generously. He gives, the word says, with simplicity. He doesn't give with mixed motives. James is saying you can ask God with zero hesitation for the wisdom that you need in those moments when you can't seem to see things the way you're supposed to because you know God does not give with mixed motives. He doesn't give you something and expect something back from you. He gives generously and with simplicity, with single focus and single-minded intent. He's so unlike you and I in this. You and I are really good at, at giving things to others or serving others or being generous with ourselves and our lives and our time and our things with others, but in our heart and in our mind and sometimes even with our words, we make sure the other person knows that we expect something in return. No, ask him with no hesitation for the wisdom that you need because you know he gives generously. He doesn't give with mixed motives. His gifts to you don't become debts. The minute he gives generously to you, the the interest calculator hasn't started. No, you know this to be true about him. He gives generously, and and he gives generously to all. You know he doesn't play favorites here. I mean, the way it works out in our minds, again, if you're anything like me, is that you can be going through a particular situation and a trial and, and you recognize, maybe even, you recognize that what you need, like James says in the moment, is, is wisdom, but you look at your trial and go, well, so many people are going through so much worse. So many people have so many more terrible things that they're going through. Why would, why would, he, why would he listen to me? I mean, why me? Why, why, give, why give me wisdom? My, my difficulty isn't as big as her difficulty. I don't know, Pastor James, hey, listen, you know who he is. You know he gives generously with, without mixed motives, and, and you know that he gives it to all, but he, he gives a particular way that's been killing me all week. I think there's still some work in my own heart that God's having to do even this morning and right now with this because I know I know my heart for it to be true of him, but it's not yet working itself out in my own life and the way I relate with others. And it's been hitting me all week and I can't seem to get around it. James says you can ask him with zero hesitation because you know he gives generously to all. And and James says he gives without reproach. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means to give without reproach? It means to give something to someone without making them feel bad for having to ask. I'm not good at that. I'm especially bad at that as a parent. Parents are masters at giving generously with reproach. Giving generously while using that opportunity to remind their child of why they shouldn't have to ask in the first place. We do it with each other all the time. I'll give you an example. Someone's moving. They need help packing, they need help getting ready. Certainly, I'll come over for a day and help you pack, but man, you should have started two weeks ago. That's giving with reproach. You need $10, I'll give you $10, just don't blow it like you did the last 50. Oh, that sounds funny, no? It's taking an opportunity to be generous to remind someone of how bad they should feel for asking you in the first place. James says, listen, as a child of God, in these moments when you you lack the wisdom you need, 
To see the trial, to see the circumstance through God's eternal perspective and purposes so that you can count it as fuel for your joy because you know that in it, he's refining the genuineness of your faith and producing a steadfastness in you and by his grace producing steadfastness in you, let it have its full effect and and bring you to maturity. You can ask for what you need knowing he's not going to make you feel bad for asking for it. He's not going to find fault in you as you ask. So have no hesitation. Have no hesitation to go and ask him for wisdom because unlike me, he's not going to shame you for coming to him. He's not going to make you feel bad for finding yourself in a situation where you need to ask him for wisdom and maybe it's the hundredth time you've asked him in the last week. He gives generously without mixed motive to all and he does it without reproach. And here's the thing I love about James. Just like we saw last week in the beginning, he doesn't expect this to be new information for God's people. He's not expecting that they hear this and go, huh, I never realized that God was actually generous. I didn't realize that that God actually gave good gifts to his children without making them feel bad for having to ask for it in the first place. No, James is saying you can ask with zero hesitation because of what you know to be true about who God is. He's talking to the church. Is there a better demonstration of the generosity of God that the church is aware of than the one who did not spare anything, who didn't hold any good thing back? but gave his own son. Is there a greater demonstration of the generosity of God than the gospel? That's what Paul told the church in Rome. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he also graciously give us all things? He's reminding God's people of what they already know to be true about God. He's generous. He's already demonstrated his generosity in nothing less than giving his own son. Do you need wisdom right now in the midst of this circumstance and situation? Then have zero hesitation in asking because he gives generously. And that generosity doesn't change once you become a Christian. I know I've lived in a lot of years in my Christian life early on thinking that God was extremely generous to people and generous to me and bringing me to faith in Christ and seeing Jesus for who he is. But now that I'm a follower of his and a child of his, he gives the way that I tend to give to my kids. He he makes me feel bad for having to come to him again and ask for what I need. Or maybe he's going to hold it back and make me learn the hard way. His generosity doesn't change. He's the giving God. Not just the God who gives things, he's the giving God. It's in his nature. So James says in the midst of it, God's people have have zero hesitation because you know to be true. You know who he is. He's the generous God. And you know there was nothing special about you that demanded he show you his generosity in his son. You know you didn't have a direct line to him that was any different than anybody else. You weren't born in a particular station of life or a particular country, a particular economic standing that earned the merit and the favor of God that he might show his kindness to you in Jesus. He he gives to all who would have faith in his son and he does it without reproach. Was there a better demonstration of the giving generosity without reproach of God than the gospel? That while you were still dead in your sins, 
While you were still dead in your trespasses, he didn't hold back his only son, but his only son died for us. That while the very thing that should disqualify us from the grace of God, our sins, our iniquities, while we were still dead in them, his own son demonstrated God's generosity in dying in our place for our sins, that those things that should disqualify us are wiped away by his forgiveness and the things that bring us into the right standing with God are only due to his son are given to us. No finger wagging, no shame induction, just mercy, just generosity, just kindness. If any of you lacks wisdom, you can't see what's going on now through God's eternal purposes, so you can't count it as fuel for joy because you can't see the refining and the building work of God. Just ask him for the wisdom because you know who he is. You've tasted it already in the way that he's given his son. Listen, how much better, how much better for, for you and I than the time we have this morning to be reminded of what we know to be true about the generosity of God, most clearly demonstrated in the generosity that he has shown us in giving his son. And then for you and I together, as God's people, to be able to respond to that generosity together. We get to do that as we receive communion this morning. We get to receive communion this morning, remembering and responding to the God who gives generously. The God who didn't withhold his own son from us and demonstrated the breadth and the width and the height of his generosity and grace who's given him to us freely without reproach. We get as God's people to remember that and celebrate that as we come forward with confidence, taking a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken and dipping it in the juice, remembering the bloodshed and remembering that we can come freely into God's presence because of this and ask for what we need. This morning, if you're a follower of Christ, in just a few minutes as the musicians play, you'll have the opportunity to come forward and do that very thing. And I hope by God's grace this morning, you can be encouraged as you do it and do it with good cheer. Knowing that you, in those moments when you can't see from God's perspective, and it doesn't feel like anything is fueling any joy in you because the purposes he has can't be clear to you, you can come and you can ask for what you need. And as you receive communion this morning, you're reminded of the breadth of his generosity to you, the freedom of his giving nature towards you. This morning, let that time for you be a time of encouragement and and joy. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, we're so glad that you're here. I pray that God would do what only God would do and he would bring you to a place in your heart where you could recognize your need for the generosity of God and saving you from your sins. As we stand and come forward and receive communion this morning, my encouragement to you is is to use one of those prayers in your worship guides right where you are and and allow God and, and trust God to show you your need for him. What you need this morning more than coming forward and taking bread and dipping it in juice is you need to see your need for him. And God's call for you this morning would be to throw your life, your hope, single-heartedly upon his son Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for the righteousness, the right standing with God that only he can provide.